Good afternoon. Baruch Hashem. Welcome everyone to our podcast here, our, our makeup podcast, if you will, for the fourth Aliyah of uh, Parashah Bayeki. Wasn't able to do it at our regular time uh, because of uh, just some important business that had had to be attended to. But here we are looking at the fourth Aliyah, Parashah Bayeki. We are in chapter 49. And looking at, uh, of course, uh, the Sefer Bracious, and, uh, and, and looking here at Jacob calling his sons to be uh, blessed. And so with God's help, we're going to pull out some important details into this particular episode and see what we can glean from this time. So it begins in verse 1. Um, then Yaakov called for his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, and I will tell you what will befall you in the end of days. There's a very interesting insight into the entire concept of blessing itself and how as a Jewish uh, people that we can we don't live by merely uh, natural means. And I like what Rabbi Monk p- points out in his commentary that we don't wish each other good luck. Uh, because good luck is actually indicative of a an, an entirely different belief system, uh, a, a belief system that says that everything that happens happens by chance, that uh, that really it's just a matter of fate, a matter of luck, a matter of see what's going to happen to you, and may you have good luck and good fortune. But we actually say to each other, may Hashem bless you, may you have shalom, may, uh, may everything work out for your best, because we have the belief in our um, ideology that everything that happens, happens because God wills it to happen. That everything that takes place is because God has a plan. This is a, a Jewish belief. That's why it actually says in the, the, the letters of the apostles in the New Testament, there's a place that says, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes. There's a reason why that's said like that. It's not, uh, it's not anything new. That was actually a Jewish concept, that everything works out for the best. Gamzu le'tovam. So, in this passage, it says, I will tell you. And so, there is something very interesting that I have... Uh, I've talked about this particular concept numerous times, but this is... Mentioned here in relationship to, to Yaakov uh, giving his sons uh, the blessing. It says here that Yaakov had intended to reveal the end days to them, but the Shekinah departed from him and he spoke of other matters. So, uh, you know, according to this, Yaakov knew how the end was going to take place and he wanted to reveal that to his sons, but uh, instead of doing that, the Shekinah left him. Why? Because the Shekinah did not want the sons to know the end. Yeah, there's a, just a, a, a very important concept here. It says, in this connection, uh, the Talmud cites the following statement in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Lachish. Yaakov saw that the divine inspiration was departing from him when he wanted to reveal the end of days to his children. And he said, perhaps there's among my offspring an unworthy son. So he thought, well, maybe I, because I don't know what the end days are, it's, it's possible that the reason I don't know is because one of my uh, sons are, are actually wicked. I don't know. So he says, uh, that's not the reason. Perhaps there's, uh, maybe as with Abraham, it says, uh, who had Ishmael for a son, and my father Isaac, who had Esau. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe maybe there's a uh, Ishmael here. Maybe there's an Esau here. Now his sons answered and, and said, here, uh, here Israel, Adonai is our God. So they answered with Ishmael. Shema Yisrael. They answered with Ishmael. 
God is one. Just as he's unique in your heart, so is he in ours. So at that moment, Yo- Yaakov cried out, Baruch Shem Kavod, Malchutu Leolam Vayed. This is from Pesachim 56a. So the issue was not that his had wicked sons. That wasn't why uh, the Shekinah departed from him. The issue is, is that knowing the end and how it's going to unfold and precisely when it's going to unfold and all the particulars related to that is not for us to know. And I find this intriguing because followers of Messiah Yeshua tend to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out end time stuff. It seems to be an obsession. It seems to be uh, just a, a inordinate passion. And what it is in actuality is, um, first of all, a big distraction. Because instead of just living for God and trying to discern how to live now, we're trying to figure out and calculate what's going to happen in the future. And the reality is no one knows. And so it's a big waste of time. And, the, and moreover, from a Jewish point of view, it's actually halakhically forbidden to try to figure it out. Oh, that doesn't mean you can't have conversation about it and think hey, it could happen like this and this could that could be interesting but in terms of trying to build an entire ministry about it and god forbid trying to um uh trying to 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 uh, market so accurately that we know for sure and then and then building building sex and denominations around it that's that's wrong it's futile to say the least so it says here the Shekinah withdrew from him, and he was unable to reveal what he wanted to reveal. It's not that he didn't know, it's just that uh, he couldn't tell us. Regarding the Brit Bain Hab Harim, the covenant between the parts made with Abraham, we have pointed out that the end of suffering and exile remains shrouded in mystery. Partly it's shrouded in mystery because we don't realize that the Lapid in that episode was actually Mashiach Yeshua as it is mentioned in Isaiah 62. So it says here, in addition to the motives mentioned there, the dialogue between Yaakov and his sons, quoted above, brings out another reason for this. The Jews have no need of knowing the duration of their suffering as long as they are supported by their Shema Yisrael. It doesn't matter. We don't have any, there's no necessity for us to know how long we're going to be in exile, how long until the end time comes. It doesn't matter so long as we have Shema Yisrael. Now, this is also an interesting insight, isn't it? Think about all the people that are consumed with wanting to know when the end's going to happen. There's big debates, pre-trib, post-trib, sub-trib, high-trib, low-trib, going to work out trib. It's all going to happen when, when we think and when we don't think trib. Everything's a trib, right? All the people that get into all that nonsense, what's what do they all have in common? All of them have in common a lack of Shema Yisrael. What is Shema Yisrael? Shema Yisrael is uh, knowing the mitzvahs, knowing the commandments, following the commandments, living for God, Torah life. So what? So now they're not living for Torah, and as a result, they're all distracted by this other issue. So we don't need we don't need to know because you know. It's going to happen when it happens. And in fact, if we are so concerned, we should, doing our very, we should be doing our very best to live for God, to be faithful to the mitzvahs, because the more people that we, the more mitzvahs that we, uh, all right, let me, let me put it this way. 
The more that we ourselves are faithful and the more people we gather into covenant, we actually expedite the end. So even if you did calculate, let's say that you calculated and say, oh, you know what, I just figured it out. I'm the only one on the planet. I'm such a genius. I figured it out. I'm the only one in history that's been able to do it because I'm just so holy that I just figured out that it's going to be 215 years from now. Well, guess what? You still could be wrong because here at Lapide, we're working on trimming off 200 years. How? By, uh, by, by making people, uh, or not making people, but encouraging people to come into the covenant, you see? So even if you're right, you're wrong. So it says here, their proclamation of absolute faith and their historical mission in the words of Shema Yisrael containing the manifesto of monotheism ought to suffice to give them courage, enthusiasm, and perseverance until the end of time. It is to fill their soul to such a point that they're not distracted. Now, that's not what it says. But it says that to, to such a point that they will, they will to achieve the messianic goal for which they live puts any anticipation of an early redemption in the background. First of all, we're so consumed with living for God that we don't have time to think about what's going to happen tomorrow, number one. Number two, because we're trying to gather in so many people, our mission is to be fishers of men. Not uh, figure out when the boat's landing. That's not our, our mission. Our mission is to put poles in the water and gather people into the boat. Not to figure out when we're going back to shore. So we're, that, everything is in the background with relationship to gathering in souls. So it says the ardor, the ardor of faith ought to be more powerful reason for loyalty to God than hope of salvation. We should be more consumed and more um, enthusiastic about our faith and loyalty to God than we are about when salvation is going to happen. For the one, it says here, for the one who has faith, what does it matter to know when his trials will come to an end? See, this is also the diabolical nature of being consumed and being just obsessed with end time prophecy stuff. Is, is what happens when they don't come to pass. And by the way, they never will. The minute that somebody gives you a date, it's wrong. The very instant that happens. If somebody says, Mashiach's going to come back next March, you know he's wrong. 100%. No question. And uh, what happens when that date comes? Do you realize how many people lose their faith when the date that they believe in comes and goes, and it's going to come and go, and they're going to lose their faith. Why? Because their faith is based not on loyalty to God and Shema Yisrael, but rather their faith is based on a date. And that's not right. So, interesting note uh, that the, the custom of saying Baruch Shem Kavod Malchutu Le'olam Va'ed after the Shema is based upon this episode. That when Yaakov was concerned that his children were not righteous, they said, we are righteous. And they said, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And he responded with his great joy at hearing his sons being faithful to the Shema, he, he responded, Baruch Shem Kavod, Malchuto Le'olam Va'ed. That's how he responded. Now, for people that say, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I appreciate your, uh, your great response and love for my canting. Thank you. Um, anyway, I, for, <laughs> for people that say 
that uh, we should be saying the divine name. Uh, first of all, no one knows how to say it, so therefore we don't. But uh, the other reason we do not is because the name is so holy. So even if we did know how to say it, um, we wouldn't. And moreover, uh, when we did know how to pronounce the divine name, it was only said by the priest in the temple. And when we would hear the divine name whispered, as it were, in the temple, everyone would, would, would fall to their face and we would cry, Baruch Shem Kavod, Malchutu Le'olam That is how holy the name of God is. Well, these customs come from this episode as we are um, looking at it here in the life of Yaakov blessing his son. So I just think that's a beautiful insight I want to do to share with you. So it goes on to um, bless his first son. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my strength, and my initial vigor, foremost in rank and foremost in power, water-like, impetuous. You cannot be foremost because you moved your father's bed, then you desecrated him, you ascended my couch. So we have a sad episode here of Reuben who loses the firstborn status because in his anger... Uh, he moved the bed of uh, his father's wife because he felt like that his mother was being slighted. And so as a result, it caused uh, him to lose his heritage. Now, the K, uh, no, this is not the Kehel Kumash. This is the Gutnik Kumash. The Gutnik Kumash has a very interesting insight, rather long, won't be able to read the entire thing, but it has to do with a discussion about why why um, Yehuda inherited, more or less, some of the firstborn qualities of Reuven, um, given the fact that both of them made tshuva. So what is it about Yehuda's tshuva that's better than Reuven's tshuva? Now, uh, we know that Yosef is the quintessential firstborn, but he didn't get all of the qualities, meaning there were two qualities associated with the firstborn that... Uh, were not given to Yosef, uh, but they were actually given to Yehuda. Now, we can make the argument the reason they were given to Yehuda is because Yehuda is the other Mashiach, and he has to have some of the qualities. So Yosef has the qualities of the suffering Messiah. He's the great Zadik. He's the one who overcame the world, who overcame temptation, you know, just like Messiah Yeshua. But he can't have all the qualities because the Mashiach ben David has to come and actually rule and reign. So very interesting here because... I want to point out that Yeshua is both king and priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he also offered himself on the, on the offering. And some would say, wait a minute, we know he's born of the line of David, even the Talmud says that, but how can he be a, 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 a priest? That's not right. He's not born of Levi. Well, it says here in the Gitna Kumash several times, it talks about the fact that with, within the firstborn is the right of priesthood and the right of kingship. So with the firstborn comes priesthood and kingship. And by the way, the, pre, the, the firstborn uh, is not limited to the literal firstborn. The firstborn can be the, the, the attribute of the, of the firstborn, the, the conference of the firstborn can be transferred from one child to another. Now, Yeshua happened to be the firstborn, but I was having a dialogue a long time with a, uh, sadly, with a disciple of mine who, um, who became an um, idolater. I'm very sad. But anyway... Um, he was uh, saying, well, in the Torah, it calls Israel this firstborn to insinuate that there's already a firstborn. So Messiah is not the firstborn. Well, he was a young man and didn't understand Torah, didn't realize that the firstborn status can be transferred from one to the other, just like it's transferred here. So we have within this concept here 
the discussion that within the firstborn, first and foremost, is kingship and priesthood. But the com- the whole story, the whole dialogue here, it brings down some comments from Rashi and some others. The whole discussion is what is it about Reuven? Because Reuven made tshuva, and one could argue that it that uh, he was busy with sackcloth and ashes um, right up until the time that he discovered that Yosef was alive. Whereas Judah was not necessarily. But but both of them made tshuva. Judah made tshuva with relationship with uh, yes with relation to uh, Tamar, and uh, Reuven had made tshuva with respect to um, kind of uh, overcoming um, his sin of moving his father's bed. And in between the the two, um, uh, Yehuda's um, sin seems to be kind of big. Uh, and Reuben's sin is relatively minor. So what's the difference? And I just like what it points out here. It says that uh, that the difference between the two is that Reuben's teshuva was all self-based. He was improving himself. But with respect to Yehuda, Yehuda was his teshuva involved helping another person, helping another person to achieve. So it says, with all of Reuben's piety, he allowed Yosef to be sold, an act which eventually gave rise to the Egyptian exile. Yehuda's intentions, on the other hand, may not have been as pure as Reuben's, but his teshuva actually saved Tamar's life, as well as the lives of her two sons, eventually giving rise to Mashiach, who would be a descendant of Peretz. From this we can learn how crucial it is not to be satisfied with one's own spiritual achievements, but to help others. For it is evident that Reuven's personal piety led the, the Jewish people into exile, whereas Yehuda's care for another Jewish person or another person was an act which led to the blossoming of Mashiach and redemption. I just thought it was a good lesson to know that our teshuva has to involve caring for other people, wanting to see other people achieve, and looking for other people's welfare. That we have to be other people focused. We have to be outreach focused. So we talk about con- um, you know, bringing people into, con- into conversion and Lapid Judaism. What are we talking about? We're talking about l- allowing people, giving people the opportunity to enjoy the same blessing, the same favor. We're God's chosen people. Why? Because we're so special? No. We're chosen for a reason. Because we're so good looking? No. We're chosen so that we can bring other people into the covenant and make them chosen. That's the whole point. So our tshuva has to be other people related. So Simon and Levi are comrades. Their weaponry is a stolen craft. Into their conspiracy may my soul not enter. With their congregation do not join on my honor. For in their rage they murdered people, and at their whim they maimed an ox. Who is the ox being referred to here? Yosef. Accursed is their rage, for it is intense, and their wrath, for it is harsh. I will separate them within Yaakov, and I will disperse them in Israel. So he's not real happy with uh, Simeon and Levi, because they are uh, they were they were on a good to to a good uh, reason. They were wanting to help their sister Dina, but they did it in a very brutal and very underhanded way, and it wasn't right. It did not reflect 
the attitude of a Jew. So there's a lot to be, that can be said for um, Levi and Simeon, but it's also reminded to us as Jews. We can be right, our, and, and this particularly to Lapid Jews, but to Jews in general. We, we can have the right faith, we can have all the right knowledge, we can have all the right insight, but if we present that faith in a very brutal, mean, ugly, harsh way, we're not fulfilling our call as Jews, and especially as Lapid Jews. Sometimes truth is hard, and so sometimes uh, expressing truth is very uncomfortable, and sometimes uh, just the, the very sheer fact of, of stating uh, facts um, can be offensive. But we should make every effort, with God's help, to make such statements with as much kindness and as much love and as much sincerity as possible. And God should help us that we should all be humble, and we should all realize that we're nothing but dust and ash, any of us. And whatever knowledge we have, we only have because God is gracious and gave it to us. And, moreover, the knowledge that we have is not so that we can be all puffed up and haughty, but rather we're given knowledge so we can bring people into the kingdom. It's like this. God gives us a fishing pole and uh, tells us to cast our, um, you know, our, our, our whatever into the water. I forget what you call it. All of a sudden I went blank. Uh, our hook, our line, a line into the water, right? Um, and so we catch a fish. We're so excited. Why? Because we have the fishing pole. Wow. Who gave it to us? Hashem. What was the purpose of it? To gather the fish. So this is the whole point, right? The knowledge we have is the fishing pole and, uh, we're gathering in fish. Why? Because we're so smart. No, but because God gave it to us. So Judah, your brother shall acknowledge your hand will be your enemies. Nap of your father's son, uh, your enemy. I'm sorry. Maybe we read this. I read it wrong. Judah, you, your brother shall acknowledge your hand will be at your enemy's nap. Your father's sons will prostrate themselves to you. A lion cub is Judah. From the prey, my son, you elevate yourself. He crouches, lies down like a lion, and like an awesome lion who, who dares arouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Yehuda, nor a scholar from among his descendants, until Shiloh arrives, and his will be an assemblage of nations. He will tie his donkey to the vine, to the vine branch his donkey's foal. He will launder his garments in wine and his robe in the blood of grapes. This is a, an allusion to the vestment dipped in blood, the, the very vestment that Mashiach will wear when he returns. Red-eyed from wine and white-toothed from milk. Now, there's so much that can be said about this particular uh, entry, but let's just deal with a few points. Until Shiloh arrives. Who is Shiloh or who's Shiloh? Shiloh is the King Messiah. He's uh, in all sovereignty will belong to him. So there's a very interesting insight. It says, until his coming, Yehuda will hold the royal scepter in the midst of his nation, meaning only Israel. But the Mashiach, Ben David, will be king over all the gathered nations. His will be an assemblage of nations. Now, this is yet to come. We're waiting on Messiah Ben David. We could say that the Mashiach, uh, Yeshua, is king now. Yes, that's true, absolutely. But we won't see the fulfillment of his kingship with the fulfillment of this passage until he returns and he's king over all the gathered nations, meaning everybody, every nation, not just Israel, but every nation will become part of Israel. And everybody will be serving the same king who incidentally has the same law for everybody. And so... Um, 
there's a discussion here about this particular concept. And it says that um, one of the discussions here says he will be prince of peace. This Shiloh, incidentally, he will be the prince of peace. You know, I find this interesting because in Isaiah we read one of the names of the child who's born to the uh, young woman, which means virgin, uh, that uh, his one of his names will be Star Shalom, Prince of Peace, which is the name of our shul. And it just so happens that it says many many people you say, well that's not that's not a messianic uh, prophecy. That's that's a prophecy about Hezekiah's son or whatever. Well, no, it's not. It says right here that the Mashiach will be called the Prince of Peace. Why? Why will he be called the Prince of Peace? He will be the Prince of Peace in the sense that the definite character of his mission will be peace and universal harmony. Shiloh is derived from Shin Lamed Hay, the root of Shalva and Shalom, which is happiness and peace. So the scepter of Judah will no longer reign only over his nation alone, but over the assemblage of nations. What? Meaning that the same scepter that rules over Judah and rules them with respect to Torah law, will now rule over the whole nations. The next part I love, it says, his, he will tie his donkey to the vine. Osri legefin ero. It says here, this is so beautiful. It says, thus Yaakov visualizes the Mashiach. But how does he see him? He sees the conqueror of humanity, not on a steed, but with a young donkey. The donkey is the beast of burden, which always represents peaceful well-being, peaceful national greatness, whereas the steed represents military might. Similarly, of all the unclean animals, in the don it is the donkey which is chosen to represent the consecration of all movable possessions. It is this animal that carries man and his goods at a leisure pace. Accordingly, the Jewish conception of royal power is not represented by the number of horses, as is forbidden for the king, Leharvo Nusus, uh, to count his horses, to number his horses. The future redeemer of Jewry and humanity appears then here in connection with the donkey. And this image supports a twofold vision of peace and material well being. For to tie up his animal, and especially the ayir, the donkey, the frisky donkey's colt to the vine is a sign of a very greatly increased development of nature. The vine being uh, understood here as as vigorous as our trees. All right, this is like abundance. The image of the Messiah riding on a donkey is also how the coming of the of the Redeemer is 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 mentioned in Zechariah. Behold. Greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout for joy. Look, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, humbly riding on a donkey, upon the colt of a donkey. From Zechariah 9.9. And how did Yeshua enter into Yerushalayim? On a donkey. Why? Because he was coming to conquer humanity. Not to conquer humanity with the sword, but to conquer humanity through his submission through his sacrifice. Now, when he returns, he will return riding a steed. But when he came as Messiah ben Yosef to conquer through suffering, to conquer through sacrifice, to conquer through giving his life, to conquer through being betrayed, he did that on a donkey, which is why he's Shiloh. So, uh, 
this is a be- I mean, obviously, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. One last thing as we conclude the Aliyah, uh, the fourth Aliyah. There's a the, the prophecy here about Zebulun. Zebulun shall settle by the seashore. He shall be at the ship's harbor, and his last border will reach uh, Sidon. Issachar, a strong-boned donkey, he rests between the boundaries. He saw tranquility, that it was good, and the land, that it was pleasant. Yet he bent his shoulder to bear and became an indentured laborer. Dan will avenge his people. The tribes of Israel will be united. So going back to, to Zebulun and Issachar. It says, Zebulun shall settle by the seashore. When Moshe gives his final benediction, Zebulun is mentioned before Issachar as, as he is here. Although the latter was the elder. So uh, Issachar was older than Zebulun. So why is Zebulun being mentioned first? It says there Rashi explains. Zebulun and Issachar had become partners. Zebulun will dwell at the shore of the sea, going out with his ships to do business and trade and become prosperous and bring, bring home the, uh, the money. Issachar is going to settle down and study Torah. What's Issachar's purpose? To teach Torah. Zebulun's purpose is to provide the funding for that Torah learning. It's a beautiful picture of how Torah is propagated in the world. But it says here, therefore, Zebulun is mentioned before Issachar. Why? For Issachar's Torah exists only because of Zebulun. And so it's a great tribute to all the beautiful people who are called to be Zebulun, which the Kehold whom Wash mentions is the majority of Israel today. People go out and they work and they, they do trade and they do business and they give to synagogues, they give to institutions of learning for whose purpose and mission, such as Sar Shalom's, is to spread Torah learning, to spread Lapid Judaism. And therefore they're honored because if it were not for their precious uh, effort, then broadcasts like you're listening to right now could not be sent out. And so I want to conclude this Aliyah uh, by saluting all the precious Zebulans there who give to people like me, to Issachar, and people like uh, um, all of us uh, here at Sar Shalom and make it possible for such learning to go out all to the earth. So God bless you. May Hashem uh, continue to prosper all of us, not just uh, financially but also spiritually. Shalom, shalom with God's help. We will return uh, tomorrow for another Aliyah, and I pray that the rest of your day goes smoothly and with great, great blessing. Shalom, shalom.